pray and then we'll look into Mark chapter 9 this morning. Father, we thank you that you gather your children. You not only saved us and redeemed us from uh, the curse, you've taken away our sins, uh, you've, you've dressed us in white robes, the, the very righteousness of Jesus Christ, and yet you also call us together to be the church, to be your bride, the ecclesia, the, the gathering of your children. This is a, a beautiful and unique, unique to Christianity, to Christ followers gathering today. And so Lord, we thank you that many, as we look around the room, do not forsake that assembling. We see that as precious. And Lord, we pray that our hearts will be stirred. Many are going through difficulties in this room, challenges, financially, health, uh, uh, relationships, and so forth, Lord. Father, we come here now to put ourselves under the word of God, to encourage us, to us to see the greatness of our Savior, and to help us keep our eyes on Him as we plow through a difficult life at times. So Lord, strengthen us today. Be with those who could not be here, as was prayed already, Lord. May they many be listening and watching, and they, they may be encouraged as well. Lord, now hear your word preached. Lord, may you be glorified and magnified by it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God is a kind God. He is marked by his kindness. And he's always seeking to encourage us. If you're a student of the word of God, if you have a relationship with, with God through Jesus Christ, you should understand that God is a kind God. I know we infuse some of our own views on God at times. Uh, if you were raised with somebody heavy-handed, sometimes that will confuse your view of God. You will think God is heavy-handed. But he is not. The scriptures are clear. He loves his children. And he loves them perfectly like no parent probably can on this earth. And so he's kind and he's always seeking to encourage us. If you read the Bible regularly, you should come away encouraged. Because that's the way the scriptures are written. They're written to encourage us and strengthen us. God often does this with leadership in the Bible. He takes men, particularly that he is going to use in mighty ways, and he displays himself in incredible ways to encourage them to go through fiery trials, much like Peter, James, and John will go through. But he did this with Paul. Remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, God gave Paul a glimpse into the third heaven. You remember that, that passage? Now, I've read that many, many times, and Paul very humbly says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in body or in spirit, he, he go, he's kind of going on about that. I do not know. But such a man was caught away in the third heaven. What an amazing statement. God had a plan for Paul. It was not an easy plan. <laughs> in fact, it ends with death. But God encouraged Paul. He let him have a view of the third heaven, he calls it. First heaven is the air we breathe. Second heaven, the outer space or the planets and so forth. Third heaven being the residence of God. The residence of all those who have gone before us. And he lets him look into this heaven. And I often thought, well, that would be it for me. <laughs> I would be, okay, we're not going back, are we? But by God's grace, Paul said, it was better for me to remain here in the flesh so that I may encourage you. Well, God does that. And, and at that time, think about this, they did not have a complete canon like we have, a complete scriptures to encourage us and help us see heaven and see all that God has done. 
And so Paul remained here. And he remained here. And he, and he wrote and recorded the scriptures by the Spirit of God to encourage us to run the race and finish. Run the race and finish. Many of us have run for a long time. And we're not done yet. I want to encourage you today, and I want to show you through this text, and it is, it is a bit of a difficult text, and there's many opinions on it, that life can be difficult, and, and these apostles are going to go through some of the hardest things, but God wanted them to see the glory of the Son so they could run and finish the race. And he wants you to see it. He wants you to believe in the person of Jesus Christ with all your heart, and he wants you to see his glory unveiled as Peter, James, and John We'll see in our text so that you can run the race before us. Let me look at a couple of points with you today as we look down through this text. Number one, the unveiling of the Son and a preview of the kingdom. The unveiling of the Son and a preview of a kingdom. If you have your Bibles, look at Mark chapter 9, verse 1 with me. We'll start here. This is the most challenging verse. There are many, many views on this. But I hope to show you what I believe, and I, and I think I'm in good company, in context of what this verse means. The Bible says this, verse 9, it's a flow of a, a conversation. You can see it flowing from the chapter before. Remember, there were not chapter breaks in the original writings of this. We put them there so we could find places. But notice it says, and Jesus saying to them, truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Well, Mark's gospel account is highlighted by the previous text. Everything comes to a crescendo in the fact that Peter, just in this this whole conversation that's going on along here, confesses that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is the Son of the living God. He is the Messiah, the Christ. It's, it's a crescendo of this letter written by Mark, this gospel presentation. And in our text, that truth is going to be confirmed. God wants to confirm what Peter said in, the, in these three apostles' minds. They're going to be the ones that will preach this. So he wants them to know this for sure, he wants to know just what Peter said. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of the living God. And so he will put on display for them. And he will take particularly here Peter's faith. And it's going to give way to sight in this passage. And that's what he does for us today. More about that in a minute. Now, Jesus will be transfigured before this inner circle of disciples, right? Peter, James, and John, in order to strengthen them for the coming trials. There's two major trials coming. There's the trial of Jesus' death, the one that you left everything for. You left your father's fishing business. You left your monetary uh, uh, finances behind in a lot of ways. They left all of that to follow him, and he's going to go through a wicked, wicked trial. And their goal is to kill everybody attached to him. So they need to be strengthened for that. And then they need to particularly be strengthened for their apostolic ministry. That's right on the heels of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so that's the setup that's going on here. Now, remember, a murder Messiah is not what the disciples and the rest of Jews had in mind for a kingdom. That's, this is the farthest thing from what they would have thought. Now, Jesus has been communicating with them on this subject. Look, at, look back at the previous chapter, Mark chapter 8, verse 31. 
after the great confession of Peter, you are the Christ, you're the son of the living God, that Matthew 17 fulfills that whole statement. Jesus, in verse 31, began to teach to them that the Son of Man, that's Jesus Christ, full of glory, fully God, fully flesh, fully man, to be our representative, and look at the phrase here, must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed and be raised on the third day. That's quite a statement, isn't it? See, Jesus has been teaching this. Notice the term, be killed. Now, you're thinking that this is my e-ticket. Some of you older people at Disney. I'm going to the head of the line. And now Jesus has been telling you, oh, hey, yeah, you confessed who I am. There's, a, there's one little caveat here. I got to die. Look at in John, excuse me, Mark chapter 9. Go a little farther. We'll get into this in the weeks to come. Mark chapter 9, verse 31. He began to teach to them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Excuse me, I'm in back in 8 again. 9.31. For he was teaching the disciples, his disciples and telling them the Son of Man is to be delivered. Now, now notice the change in the language here, the verb here. He's to be delivered. Well, who's delivering him? His father. His father is about ready to deliver him into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But notice verse 32, but they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. Now, this is the context of this great statement in chapter 9, verse 1. He's the Christ, he's the Messiah. He's going to die, he's going to be buried, and he's going to be resurrected. That's the context of what this lies in. And there's probably no greater verse in Scripture that gets pulled out of that context to talk about eschatological events. So look at verse 1 with me again. Now, in the context of his, his prophesied death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus is saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, every eschatological group loves to claim this verse. But the context is king. It's how we understand difficult passages in the scriptures. We hold to a context. And it's, it's our only hope to, to understand some deep things in scriptures. Now, Peter and the rest of the disciples, they're eagerly awaiting the glorious kingdom of God. And the cross, I want you to think about this, is an unanticipated stumbling block for them. That's unanticipated. And it's hard. It's hard for us. We've seen it all, right? We have the whole completed scriptures. We see the events. We see the trial. We see the crucifixion. We see the burial. We see the resurrection. We see the rest of the New Testament, the gospel built on that. They don't. They're right in the middle of it. And so here these three men that are going to go up on this mountain have not anticipated this, and it's a stumbling block. And you know what? It's not only a stumbling block to Peter, James, and John, but it was a massive stumbling block to the Jewish nation. And still is, right? First Corinthians, First Corinthians 1, 23, 24, somewhere right in there, says that the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews. It's, it's, it's just a stumbling block. And it's a stumbling block to the whole world. You've heard me say this before when you pray for our missionaries that work in the Muslim world. What are they over there telling them? Well, you need to believe in Jesus, who's a God-man, born a Jew, and he died on a cross. That takes 
a divine work of God in someone's life to believe that. That's why we pray for our missionaries. To boldly and humbly preach the truth because it's very difficult to get our mind around that and we really can't outside the spirit of God. So this is a stumbling block. But Jesus' main conversation in this text is his death and resurrection. Over and over again, he keeps talking about his death and resurrection. So our view of this verse must be controlled by this context. Notice in verse 1, I truly I say to you, there are some of you standing here uh, uh, who will not taste death, that's a, a term for dying, um, until they see the kingdom of God after it's come in its power. Now, notice in verse chapter 8 verse 34 I want you to back up so we're in the context here it says and he that's Jesus summoned the crowd with his disciples and then verse chapter 9 verse 1 Jesus is saying to them so it seems that the instruction of 9 1 is is possibly spoken to a larger crowd than just his disciples so he's gathered in this crowd. Remember, he's in Caesarea Philippi. He's probably close to, the, to, to Mount Hermon somewhere where he's going to most likely go up on, on here for this transfiguration. And he's gathered these people. Some are Jews, some are Gentiles. Most of them are probably pagan. He's gathered them around himself. Now, particularly for the disciples, it would have been crushing news to hear the Messiah was going to die. So in verse 38, as we follow the context down, he says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous, sinful generation. Now, here's my words. I'm going to die and be resurrected. So he says, look, whoever's ashamed of the gospel in this sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father and his holy angels. So there, here's a, the context that is set in. Now, think about it. Certainly, the disciples thought that Jesus uh, wouldn't be murdered. They, 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 they're trying to get their mind around that. But, it, but Jesus immediately goes into, and I love this verse in verse 38, to comfort them. Look, I told you some hard things. I had to rebuke you, Peter, because you couldn't handle what I was telling you. I had to say, get behind me, Satan. You're, you're not thinking like God. You're like God's will and God's word. You're thinking like a man. But I want to tell you, don't be ashamed of this. Because if you're not ashamed of this, I won't be ashamed of you. You can see the opposite in the text, right? If you're ashamed of this, I'll be ashamed of you. Meaning, you're, you're ashamed of, of, of what you believe? No, you're ashamed of what you don't believe. So he says, believe in me. He's already telling them, look, I'm going to come back. I'm coming with all my glory. All the things that you are longing for, I'm going to come. But there is an unanticipated bump in the road for you. And I want you to trust me in this. So I believe Jesus is speaking here of his transfiguration. I believe he's telling them that there is something that's going to happen here shortly to help you get through what I'm asking you to do. So certainly also, if you think about this, there, there's those that were hearing this instruction who died before Christ's death and resurrection. So he says, Truly, there are some of you that won't taste death until you see the kingdom of God. Well, we know of one who dies before the death, burial, and resurrection. Who's that? Judas. So, so he's, he's talking about some within this. In this larger crowd that's there, assembled in Caesarea Philippi, doubtlessly there were some maybe that tasted death. But I think, I think what he's talking about here in this text is Jesus is the sum will not taste death. I believe he's speaking to Peter, James, and John. 
And here's why. Because they're going to be the writers of the New Testament. They're the main speakers and leaders of the church after its birth in Acts chapter 2. These are the men who will rise. God will rise them up and, and lead the church. And so it is these men that he is going to transfigure himself before. So I believe Jesus, what Jesus means is that when he says the kingdom of God after his coming with his power is not um, only the unveiled beauty and glory of Christ that we'll see here in, in, in the next verses, verse 3, but I think he's talking about the resurrection. And I want to prove that to you this morning. Because look, there is no kingdom without the resurrected Christ. Do you realize that? There's nobody in the kingdom if he doesn't rise from the dead. So this unveiling of his transfigured body and presence and person and glory is to show them the results of a coming resurrection. It's a fascinating thing to look at. Now, look with me in verse 3. We'll come to this in a minute. His garments become radiant, exceedingly white, as no launder on earth can whiten them. So something magnificent is going to take place here. So the resurrected Christ is truly the power and authority of the kingdom of God. He's going to show them a preview to what's going to happen. In a sense, maybe young people can get their mind around this. It's a trailer. Isn't that good? You know, we watch trailers and we go, ah, oh, yeah, I don't want to see that. <laughs> Dude, this is a trailer like you want to see. He's unveiled of who he is full deity of God exposed before these three men and he is showing them what's coming and the disciples are warned not to tell anyone because the resurrection the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ will have no power if he doesn't go through this <laughs> so he must go through it so there there is no kingdom without a resurrection now this becomes the theme of the apostles, the resurrection. This, this event really stirs these men. And this becomes their theme, particularly after they come to an understanding of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look with me in Acts chapter 1. I just want to take you just a short tour through, through the first few chapters of Acts. You can study this all the way through the book of Acts and just put in your search for resurrection or raised up, any of those type of terms. And it is remarkable how many times the apostles preach and the main theme is the resurrection. Now, now look with me in chapter 1, verse 21. Let me just give you the context. Judas is dead. They want to replace him. They believe God wants him replaced. So they're looking for the man that God has. Who's going to replace the 12th apostle? Who's going to be that person? Now look what it says in verse 21. Therefore it was necessary that the men, this is what they're saying, who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. So he says, it's got to be, here the scriptures are recording this, Luke's recording this for us, it's got to be someone who was with us when Jesus was here. When Jesus went in and went out from us, and he's got to be one of those guys. Look at verse 22. Beginning with the baptism of John, John baptized the Lord Jesus. This is, they're setting some parameters of, of who this person is until the day that he was taken up from us. So it's got to be one of those guys. And then look at this last statement here in verse 22. 
And one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. They don't even pick disciples or or followers or leaders in this who have not witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the absolute key. Can you imagine having a church leader early in the church that didn't see it, didn't understand it, doesn't have his mind around it? The gospel is built around the resurrection. You can have all the death, 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 burial, burial, burial you want, but if you don't have a resurrected Savior, you don't have new life. And so it's, it's, it's permeates their, ta- their, their teaching. Look at chapter 2, verse 23 and 24. Right now in the middle of Peter's great sermon of the launch of the church, this is the birth of the church. Um, at the end of this sermon, thousands are going to come to Christ. The church is going to be launched and it will never be stopped, ever, for all of eternity. It starts in this text. And in the middle of this text, verse 22, Peter says, Men of Israel, chapter 2, verse 22, listen to these words. Jesus of Nazarene, a man attested to by God with miracles, wonders, and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God. That answers the question, really, who kills God? God predetermined him. Man has their role in this. Look at the next phrase. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godly men and put him to death. Human responsibility. God's plan, humans carried out the sin. Now look at verse 24. But God raised him up again putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. This is the message. It goes on and on. Chapter 3, you get into verse 14. They've raised, they've healed the sick man uh, at the portico there at the temple and they're going, you know, what authority have done this? Look, authority of Jesus Christ, the one you killed who God raised from the dead. Chapter 4, they're circled by the killers of Christ and they're there, let out of prison, and they're preaching, and they just tear into them and say, the one you put to death, God, God raised from the dead. Sermon after sermon after sermon is built around the resurrection. Now, one last passage I want to take to you before we get back to her. Go to Philippians chapter 3. Paul was not there with the original apostles to see the resurrected Savior, But we know that God led Paul out into the desert and revealed himself, not only there, but also revealed himself, um, Jesus Christ, the resurrected Savior, on the road to Emmaus. Excuse me, on the the road to Damascus. He knows who this is. Look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 8 through 11. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8 through 11. There I am. More than that, now he's been talking about, look, if you want to boast about stuff, I'm the, I'm the poster boy for Hebrews. Uh, I've kept the law, I've persecuted the church, I'm righteous according to the law, I'm blameless. He goes through all of these things, but verse 7, but whatever things are gained to me, those things I've kind of lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count, verse 8, all things to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. This is the, the same one who is transfigured to the apostles. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, Counted them but rubbish, so that I may gain that I may gain Christ, and now, and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, though I could gain that in some way, which you can't. But that which is through faith in Christ—that's where our righteousness comes from. The righteousness which comes from God 
on the basis of faith. Then he says this phrase, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. That's the mark of a believer. It's the mark that differs a believer from an unbeliever. If you don't understand the power of the resurrection of Christ, you don't understand that your sins have been taken away. You don't understand the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus, you will be tempted to add something to Christ. That's why Christians are the ones who celebrate the resurrection of Christ. They all think we're crazy. We sit up on the lawn in the dark out there and and worship the Lord. Because we know that if he doesn't come out of that grave, we have no salvation. Everything is based on it. The kingdom of God, the earthly kingdom of God, when he returns to this earth, eternity and all that it has for us is all based on the power of the resurrection. It's all based on how God looks at us. If, If he isn't resurrected, and you resurrect it with him. Remember Romans chapter 6 says that he died, we died in Christ and we were raised with Christ. If you're not raised with Christ, there is no kingdom for you. There is only hell and all the judgment that comes with that. And so Paul says, look, I'll give everything up for the power of the resurrection. So you see where I'm going with this? This is what Jesus is showing a preview, a trailer to these three men. I want you to see who I really am, what the resurrected Savior is going to be like. I know I've told you about death. I know I've told you about the separation, that I'm going to go and be suffered. I'm going to die and, and, and be raised from the dead. I know that's hard for you, but you need to see what this is going. You need to see where this is going. As you turn back to Mark chapter 9, just some thoughts about this. Some, some say that the kingdom of God starts at the transfiguration. Well, I, don't, I can't go with that theme because you don't have a resurrected Savior yet. So how does the kingdom of God get ushered in when you don't have a resurrected Savior yet? There's others that say the kingdom um, begins at, at 70 AD when, when the collapse of the Jews and the crushing of them and the destruction of the temple. But again, now you have dead apostles before 70 AD, namely um, James and, and, and Peter. So I, I don't think this text is built on it. You also have a time issue, and, and then you have an interpretation issue going, well, is a 1,000 years really a 1,000 years? So, I mean, I worked for some 2,000 years now since the resurrection of Christ. So, so there's issues that go on there. So I, I don't think that's what this text is about. I think we interpret the Scriptures literally. And so here, when I think about the, the kingdom of God, I, I believe God is going to restore man back in the earth for this thousand-year reign of Christ. And you have so much of your text. One of the fun things we talk about with the seminary guys is working through the major and minor prophets. Then you have passages like Isaiah 65 where the, the lamb and the wolf will lay down together. Well, look, I've done a lot of ranching. <laughs> and the only good wolf is a... Uh, I mean... <laughs> Because they don't lay down with my cattle. They eat them, <laughs> right? It's not here yet. And, and, and if you study those last seven chapters of Isaiah and then each of the major and minor prophets, there's literal fulfillment of Christ on, on the earth. And brothers and sisters, I, I know there's a great debate about those things, but be careful of those things. Always look at the Bible literally. God isn't trying to fool us in the scriptures. I don't think he wants everything spiritualized. Now, with that said... 
Um, and one other thought, because Peter, you go, if this was about the kingdom of God, wouldn't Peter write about this event? Well, he does write about it. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16 to the end of the text. And you know what he says in that? He says, yeah, we saw the transfiguration. It was amazing, but we have something more sure. The prophetic word of God. So he doesn't use this whole thing to say, hey, the kingdom has come and we're here on earth and all that. He uses it to say, well, that was spectacular. It was amazing. But we got something even better. We got the word of God. That's how he handles it. So, so I'm very much a proponent in our churches of, of there's a real true earthly kingdom God is going to set up. And so I, I, I just don't think that, that that's, we're in some spiritualized kingdom at this point. Now, is... They're a spiritual kingdom of God. Yes. And when you get saved, you're part of it. And, and so I, I think we can use that language. It can be a little tricky. But, but think about places like 1 Peter chapter 2, 9 through 10. We are a chosen race, a holy priesthood, a holy nation, people for God's own possession. And so I believe we're part of God's family and part of God's great kingdom that will come on this earth someday. And so I think it is, there's a difference between understand a spiritual kingdom of all those who belong, our brothers and sisters overseas that we don't get to go to church with, but that we're part of a large family of God's family, the kingdom of God. But to spiritualize everything, to turn everything into, well, that, that isn't going to happen physically, but here's how it happens spiritually. I think there's a danger there because we're reading into the scriptures. So there's my stance. So let me sum up this verse and then I've got to really race through the next one. Um, to sum up this point, I believe the transfiguration was given to encourage the disciples for their upcoming apostolic positions and to display the power of the kingdom in the soon-to-be-resurrected Messiah. Men, you're going to go through difficult things. I want to show you who I am. And you're going to go and take my word when the Spirit falls upon you. You're going to go and take my word and you're going to preach the gospel to all the nations. And that's exactly what they did. And so I would say to us today, brothers and sisters, be encouraged. Christ beat sin, he beat Satan, he beat death through his resurrection. He's empowered us to share this gospel message. And we're people that have, have freedom from the wages of sin. Just think about that term, you are free from your wages. You had a debt, I had a debt we could not pay. And because of this resurrected Savior, you and I are free from our sins. Now, let's get moving here. Number two, Jesus is the pure revelation of the glory of God. Look at verse two and three. Some of the Pharisees, in chapter 10, nine, here we go. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and he brought them up on the high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. Now we're gonna get into the events of this, which are really cool. And his garments became radiant, exceedingly white, as no laundered on earth can whiten them. Isn't it interesting he says six days later? And you say, well, what's the importance of that? Because there's a time frame here. It's, it's all built. He's going, he tells them what he's going to do. He says, I'm going to show you this. And then in six days, all of the writers of the gospel accounts mark it by the days. I think Luke uses eight days, counting that day and the day it happened. Uh, Matthew and Mark use six and they often do that meaning this is the day it happened so so six days later all the accounts use this and and more the reason to believe that transfiguration was about what Jesus was talking about I know I'm going to die but I want to show you something remarkable so you'll have faith and you'll follow me now 
Jesus has this inner circle of men with him. Notice in verse 2, Peter, James, and John are with him. That's really interesting, isn't it? And, and certainly, Jesus gathered these 12 disciples, and later Judas dies, he kills himself, and Matthias is added that we looked at in Acts 1. But there's this plurality of leaders there. And I, and I think this shows that God even has, he has a plurality of leaders, but he has some within that plurality that he raises up to, to do special things with. They're not greater, uh, Peter wasn't a greater uh, apostle than Bartholomew, though the world likes to make him, religious like to. He, he shared that. But, but even probably more important than, this, than these uh, leaders among the leaders here that we see is the law said that any time that you wanted to be a witness of something, you had to two to three witnesses of it. And isn't it interesting that Jesus takes two to three witnesses with him? Because remember, Jesus came not to demolish, abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so I think that's more the reason why he has these three men on them. Yes, they're going to be the leaders of the church, and they're going to go and do great things for the Lord that we now read their words inspired by God. But he's fulfilling this, so we can trust these men's word. Um, High Mountain, I think it's Mount Hermon, probably. It's the highest mountain near Caesarea Philippi. Isn't it interesting Jesus does this? God did this very same thing with Moses and Sinai. He brought him up to Mount Sinai. He went up towards him. He brings man up towards him. And I think he did this. I think it was a secluded spot there. And then, and then Mark says, and he just simply says this. Notice in the verse. And he was transfigured before them. Mark, uh, excuse me, Luke 9, the other one of the other recordings says that the disciples had fallen asleep <laughs> right before this. I, I, and I, I thought about that for a while ago. You know what? Our passions are not Jesus' passions sometimes. When you read the Bible, you go, don't you ever do this? I, I did this this week. I said, Lord, don't let me lose my desire for you because of things that pull me away at times. And I think the disciples were going, are we going on a hike, Lord? You're telling us you're going to die. And they're tired. And they seem to doze off or something, and the Lord awakes them. And here they are, they're on this mountain. And yet, the Bible just says Jesus is transfigured. It's an interesting word. We, we get our English word metamorphosized from it. It means simply just to be transfigured. It's used four times in the Scriptures, two for Christ and two for Christians. It literally means to be radically changed. And believe me, they had been walking with Jesus for almost 33 years. Well, well he's been on the, world, on the earth for 33 years. They've been walking with him for almost three years now. And they saw him as a man who ate and, and drank and fell asleep and all of those things. This was a radical change that they were going to see. But you know where else this is used? 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. It's used about us, this word. That God is currently transforming us into the image of his son. It's used there and in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Each one's that we're being conformed, our minds are being conformed. And so it's this ongoing process that he transforms us when it speaks of a human. So it's a beautiful word, this word to track down. We build um, our discipleship on this word, that God is transforming us, that we continue to grow in grace and knowledge of him. Um, and so one of our sayings that we have, what we like, a dear friend of ours uh, told us this a long time ago, said, once saved, always changing. So God's always changing us. Now, back to our text. Notice there in verse 3, he has, this brilliant glory is revealed. And, and so they, they, 
They see him. He's brought up into this mountain. He's transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no laundered on earth can make them. Now, all the accounts note his garment's whiteness. And they note it as, as gleaming light. It, it's an interesting word. You, if you trace it down, you go, it's not, it's not a, a natural light to us, it seems. It's, it's this glorious light. It's a blaze of glory that Peter and James saw. John 17, Jesus says in his prayer before the night, before he says, he says, return to me the glory we shared before the foundations of the world. And I think he's getting a glimpse of this. In Revelation chapter one, remember God shows John in a vision. He says, I'm gonna show you who I am. And, and John says in verse 14, his head and his hair were like white, like white of wool, like that of snow. His eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze. And they were made to glow, like made to glow in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of many waters. And his right hand held the seven stars, and out of his mouth was a two-edged sword. And then it says this, and his face was like that of the sun shining in all of its strength. Now, moms, how many times have you told your kids when they're little, don't look directly at the sun? The Bible is telling us that in this moment when Jesus is transfigured, he looks like the sun. Can you imagine that? Something you can't, you can't fully look into. God's revealing who he is. He's revealing us. And I, and I think it's so good for you and I to study these texts because the world has placated Jesus down to this good servant, good humanitarian. He is God. And he is brilliant in who he is. He veiled all of that so he would die, so men would kill him, so he'd hang on a cross so you and I can see the kingdom of God someday. And in that moment, God drops that veil, unveils him, unmasked who he really is in front of these three men, and they saw his face bright like the sun. What, an, what a disturbing event. When the Bible, the Bible says in Mark, Mark chapter, excuse me, Matthew 24, when he returns, that he will have that same appearance when he comes to bring judgment upon the earth. Three, it's, it was good, it will be good to be with Jesus when he is revealed. My third point. It will be good to be with Jesus when he's revealed. Look at verse four through six. Elijah then, Elijah appeared to them with, along with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Yeah, let us make three tabernacles, these are tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And then it says this race, for he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Now, Peter's right in verse five here. It's good to be there. And when Jesus is revealed, trust me, you want to be on his side. <laughs> this is not the Mickey Mouse um, feminine, uh, uh, weak Jesus the world has made out. This is the glory of God. He holds all of that. He shares that. There are several things that are very cool about this text. Um, one, notice these glorified spirits of Elijah and Moses appear visibly to the disciples. And I think what's interesting is they don't have a resurrected body yet, because that hasn't happened, but the disciples can recognize them. Now, were there photos floating around of Elijah and Moses? <laughs> I don't think so. How do they know? Isn't that, isn't that interesting? I think that brings a lot of comfort. 
I remember many widows and widowers I've met with through the years, and, and they, they're concerned that if their, their loved one passes ahead of them, when they get to heaven, will they recognize them or not? I think this verse is helpful. Hey, there's Elijah and Moses. <laughs> I've been carrying their baseball card around with me. Yep, that's them. <laughs> I don't know how they do it. They just know it. It's clear. They, they know who's who, right? There's a great, there's a great scene uh, here, and they're, they're seeing these men. And even though they have not had their resurrected bodies, they immediately see them. And so you say, well, what about our loved ones who have passed ahead of us? And, and they're with our loved ones. I think, you know, they recognize each other. Right? We have dear loved ones who have passed ahead of us, who know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Well, I think they're having a good time up there. Second, victory over death. Isn't it interesting? These men had died. We have record of it in the Old Testament. There's a fight over the body of Moses. Elijah dies. I mean, these men die. And yet, the text says they're alive. Isn't that cool? Isn't that a reminder that that if you are a follower of God, follower of God through Jesus Christ, these men had a greater hope that that God was going to put a kingdom on the earth, that God would deliver them. Their faith was in God alone because they did not know Jesus at that time on the earth. Their faith was that God would uh, deliver them, that God would rescue them. And these men who had died are alive. I like that. That's a good reminder. And when we're here during a memorial service of someone, we need this stuff. We need to remind, hey, hey, yeah, we miss them terribly. They're with Jesus. They're recognizable, and they're with him. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, look, this earthly tent is just here for a little while. We're going to get a new one. And we walk by faith right now, but there's a day we will walk by sight. And I think God's giving Peter, James, and John a little view of that. Third, there was, no, um, there was no human savior or lawgiver like Moses in the day, right? And there was no one like Elijah in the day. And so I think these two men are handpicked by God, designedly in the plan of God. So, so Moses is brought in front of them. And I think he brought Moses in front of them because he brought physical salvation to the nation of Israel. Now, make sure you follow me on that, not... not salvation as we would think of salvation but he was God's representative he was God's type to go into a nation and rescue people out of slavery that's what Christ did for us so in this account as God prepared this before the foundations of the world he chose to have Moses which would have been one of their patriarchs the one who would have rescued man out of slavery he chose to have them there and they're there with Christ I think that's really cool Moses also interceded between God and man. That was, he was the interceder, and so he's a type. He, he, he knows the job of Jesus because he did that before Christ's ministry. He also has Elijah here. Elijah is a fascinating prophet to, start, to, to study. He fights the worldliness of Israel. Elijah is sent into the nation of Israel that has gone completely pagan. They're worshiping dead gods. They, they have given themselves over to immorality, and Elijah fearlessly, at times he gets afraid, but most of the time, fearlessly goes on and takes on the false prophets and wicked kings. And so I think he's doing, this is just a pep rally, right? I'm going to be transfigured in front of you. You're going to see what 
I will be like after the resurrection at the right hand of the Father. You're also going to see two men who put their faith in me. They put their faith in my Father that I would deliver them. And I want to encourage you. Do you think it's important to read your Old Testament? Why didn't he bring some New Testament characters forward or someone around between the time of the Old Testament and New Testament? He brings two of their patriarchs to, to, uh, ahead of them so that they would see what they did and honor them and walk like them. I, I, I just re, it's remarkable when you study this stuff. So these two men were probably the most reliable witnesses to come and tell about the suffering and the glorification of Christ. They're part of that message. Four, Peter, Peter speaks for the group as usual, right? And he gives huge titles here. Mark, he says rabbi. Luke, he says master. Matthew, he calls him Lord. I think it's all coming from the same Greek word there. There's this mixture of holy fear and terrifying marvel as Peter speaks. And it's really amazing. Uh, um, I think... I think maybe we'll have it when we see him someday. Uh, not, not a fear of sin, a sinful fear of any way, but I think there'll be an awe and reference. Funeral. Dear brother Mallory, his wife died here short, just a little while ago. And at the funeral, they sang that great song, Will we dance before you, Lord? Will we, will we bow? Will I stand in there in silence? I don't know. I don't know, but how much I know is there's going to be this incredibly humble awe of who he is. When you pass away from this life and the Lord returns, this is who you're going to see. This one here in this text, you will see him bright as the sun. You will see him with all the authority that the Father has given him. You will stand in that one's presence. And he'll say, welcome in. I'm your older brother. Come to the family. What an amazing thing. And so here there's just great truth that I think they're going through. Look at verse 6 with me. For he, for he did not know what to answer, for they'd become terrified. And I, I think that's what we're seeing here. And so he kind of comes up and he says, well, well let's, let's build some tabernacles. Let's build some tents. This goes back to the Feast of Tabernacles when, when the nation would go out of town and they would set up tents and they would live in those tents and then they would honor and worship God for rescuing them from captivity, rescuing from their slave way. And, and so Peter, out of all this fear, he says, I just think it's good to be here, so let's build some tents. <laughs> I, I think it's just joy. And I feel for Peter here, I think he's seeing maybe this is slipping away. Maybe he looks at this and says, oh, maybe this is starting to go away because in verse 7, this cloud forms and, and then all of a sudden, um, in verse 8, these men are gone and just Jesus is there and maybe he's saying, Lord, I don't want this to go. I don't want this to go. I want you to bring your kingdom right now. We, we can crush the Romans. I can be on your left and right. We can do this, Lord. And so there's this almost awakening as he's going forth. And let me just go one more point. We'll tie this into our next text next week. For the father's unalterable plan triumphs over the emotions of his children. Verse 7 and 8, Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and the voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. All at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. I think it's hard for us to get our minds around the emotions of the event. Again, Peter thought this was it. 
Here's men who had died that are alive. The patriarchs are with us. Enemies can be dispatched. We can sit on the left and right. Let's go. Let's start your kingdom. Let the kingdom come. But here, again, he's brought back to reality. There must be a crown of thorns first. I think that's what he's showing him. And there must be a resurrection so I can hold this position and, and lead this kingdom. This is the perfect plan of the Father. And, and, and there, there seems to be a push here. Uh, maybe possibly Peter doesn't want this to go. Let's build tabernacles. Let's stay in the moment. Let's hold this right here. But there was so much more to be done before this can come. Notice in verse 7, a cloud forms around them. I think this is very similar to what happened with God in Moses and Mount Sinai. Um, there the presence of the Almighty God, the Father, was with him. And in, in here as well. And all of a sudden in this moment, these, these two figures disappear it seems. And, and now God speaks out of this cloud and he, he's very clear, this is my beloved son. This is the one you confess, Peter. Listen to him. Isn't it interesting he says that? I think so often we preach these sermons and we go, hey, you need to listen to Jesus. Well, I think that's true. But think about the context here. Peter does not want to believe he's going to die. So God comes through the clouds and he says, oh, Peter, listen to him. Don't think like a man. Don't set your mind on things of man. Set your mind on things of God's interests. Listen. Listen to what he's saying about his death. Listen to what he's saying about his resurrection. This is the gospel. This must take place first. In verse 8, it's interesting. He, they, he kind of wake up out of this somewhat of a stupor here all all of once they look around and there was no one there except Jesus. Matthew records it this way. Matthew 17, 7 says, And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. It seems they're almost in shock of some. And I think you would be, right? Maybe this blaze of glory and the shock of what's going on. Jesus kind of awakens them. He says, Let's go. And there's no one there but Jesus. Now, now, why is that important as we close this thought? Why is that important? Because for the Jew, it'd be real easy to put your faith in Moses. He's the law. He, he gave the law. Right? He, he interceded in front of God. And what about Elijah? He, he's a fearless prophet. Maybe if I'm like Elijah and I'm fearless, God will let me into his kingdom. Maybe if I'm like Moses and hold to the law, he'll let me in the kingdom. No when they awake, there's no one there but the only way, the only truth, and the only life. I think that's important. Because you and I, we are tempted to build lists. We're tempted to go back and say, well, if I'm more like Moses, maybe I can get in. <laughs> Moses needed the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so when they look up, there's no one there. Just the way, the truth, and the life. And the way his... Uh, the way was his death and resurrection. The plan was God's, so listen to him. And we'll, we'll, we'll pick this up next week and venture into following verses. But um, this, is, this is an amazing text. This is Jesus Christ showing three men who would be the writers and teachers of the early church who he is. But more importantly, I want you to close with this. He's the same Jesus you'll see if you know him. 
He'll be completely transfigured in front of you, not for just a moment like Peter, James, and John saw, not for just a moment on Damascus Road that Paul saw, but for all of eternity. And he will endow you with everything you need to be in the presence of the Almighty forever. And that'll be amazing. I hope you're encouraged. Run the race God gave you. Don't run my race, run yours. He's waiting for you. He's done everything we need to get into his presence. Put your faith in Jesus. Father, thank you for this message. Thank you for this text, Lord. We didn't get all the way through it, but we're in awe of it, Lord. We're in awe that you would show these men the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. One that was unveiled before them. One that has all things in his hands. The one that can carry out the Father's plan. The one who all enemies will be made his footstool. That one was unveiled. But Lord, he's been unveiled to us now. (laughs) He's been unveiled to us through the word of God. We see the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his glory in much more detail than these three men saw. We have the whole Bible. We we see the whole picture from Genesis all the way through flowing to the cross. We see the after effects of Christ's resurrection and the transformation that takes place in our lives and in the birth of the church and so forth. All of that, Lord, we now have. So, Father, encourage us. Encourage us. Encourage those this morning who have lost loved ones. That their loved ones, if they know Christ, their Savior, they're in the presence of this fully transfigured Lord Jesus Christ, even as we speak now. And Lord, encourage those of us that have uh, difficult lives. There's those in here going through hard times, Lord. There's those going through difficult paths, Lord. There is a Savior at the end of that path. In fact, He's walking with them. And so, Lord, it's worth, it's worth the, uh, the race, Lord. So keep us in it. Keep us trusting you, our eyes on you, Lord, in Jesus' name.